Grace Pod is a ministry of Grace Church Greenwich. For more resources to help you get to know God better through His Word, including bite-sized theology and answers to big questions, do check out www.greenwich.church. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Grace Pod, and today we're looking at nine out of the ten plagues of Egypt. So all of them, apart from the last one, which we'll come to next time. And um, um, I've actually learned quite a lot about this um, since we wrote the book Dig Even Deeper about Exodus. And um, in that book, we had a question, why ten plagues rather than one? You know, why couldn't God have just done it in one go? And one of the theories we discussed was the ten plagues for ten deities. So some people said, you know, that the sun was worshipped in Egypt, the sun god Ra, and the plague of darkness, God punches his lights out. And they... um, they worshipped um, the god Kepri, I think it is, that looks like a frog. And then um, in the Plague of Frogs, God makes them hopping mad. And we had all these ridiculous puns. And we sort of dismissed that theory. And I think I still don't think that there's one plague for every Egyptian deity, because there's just you know, lots and lots of Egyptian deities. But I think there's much more than I've realised in terms of the contest between God with a capital G and the false gods or the demonic gods with a small g. Um, Andrew, I think I know you think the same. Do you want to tell us about that theme and why it matters? Just even in conversation, I think you had last week with someone. Yeah, so I was talking to someone who's just kind of um, getting to grasp Christianity for the first time, and I was saying, "Oh, what what put you onto it?" Because he was an atheist, and he said, "Well, actually, it was an awareness of evil which first alerted him to the spiritual world, and he had a an experience of." a really terrifying experience um, which shook him out of his atheism first and, and actually I know there's others in church um, from different parts of the world um, for whom uh, it wasn't uh, you know have always been aware that there is evil in the world real supernatural evil and have been you know gone to bed every night frightened about it and um, discovering that Jesus was stronger than evil was their route into faith whereas I think for many Westerners we, we come to trust in Jesus and then we discover that there's real supernatural evil later. Um, so, and even the place we don't see God versus a materialist Pharaoh. We see God versus a Pharaoh with supernatural powers on his side. Yeah. And I think this is flagged up right at the beginning. So when Moses and Aaron arrive in Pharaoh's court, there's a little sort of conversation and then they, um, Moses and Aaron do their, I say trick, they do their miracle at God has told them to do where they throw down their staff on the floor it turns into a snake and then weirdly pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers chapter 7 verse 11 and they do exactly the same by their secret arts so we discover that they can do the same stuff but not by god's power but by some other means Um, and we keep seeing that and there's a sort of again there's a comedy to it i look i mean the film exodus gods and kings is a just terrible, terrible film, and we'll come to why a bit later on. But um, the one thing it, it kind of gets right is the plagues, or it does the plagues in a massive CGI, and it has the Egyptian magicians as kind of comedy characters. And I think it is a bit comedy. They God turns water into blood, and they find some water that is okay and turn it into blood as well. You're like, well, thanks. You know, that was the last <laughs> bit. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then they make frogs, and the Egyptians make the magicians make more frogs, and so they add to the problem rather than ease it. But they the fact remains they can turn water into blood and they can miraculously create frogs. So there's some power here. Although they drop out of the race. 
Yeah, after. that's right. And that, but I think after they keep up for the first three, and then they discover before Pharaoh does. Pharaoh take, is takes a long time to grasp that God's in charge. But they say, no, this really is the finger of God, and they say that to Pharaoh. I love the the, the little cameo of you know they drop down their stars, both turn into snakes, and then what actually happens is Moses and Aaron's Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, and I think that that cameo is. A, a brilliant kind of description of uh, the Bible's view of supernatural evil. One, it's real. Uh, mm. They could really do it. Two, it's nothing compared to God's power. And and that happens before the plagues as a sort of uh, trailer. Um, yes, there is going to be some, some magician um, response, but honestly, the big headline is they're nothing compared to God. And you pointed out to me earlier that this idea of, um, the snake swallowing or this event where their the snake swallows them um, is the same thing that happens at the Red Sea and in the song in chapter 15 the earth swallowed them so God's judgment is he engulfs and swallows the, the opponent yeah, that's right and then this I mean this theme that God has beat a rival and it isn't just Pharaoh it comes up in a couple of times in, in Exodus explicitly so in chapter 12 verse 12 God says I will pass through the land of Egypt. I will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt, small g. And then again in the song that they sing after they cross the, the Red Sea in chapter 15, they ask the question, who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods who is like you? So again, it's not it's not God is the only, but God is the supreme. Now, let's just step back and ask the theological question. So multiple gods, is this polytheism or is this i think is it henotheism the fact that there's there's one god that's better than the others first amongst rivals um i thought we were meant to be monotheists yeah and and there is a sort of theory of religion that assumes that just as you know there that there's a kind of evolution where you start with humanity being polytheists and then we become henotheists so we say yes there's lots of god but my god's the best and then eventually you become um, monotheists um, and actually I think the Bible teaches the opposite so in Romans 1 you know we, we began knowing God and then we it's out of rebellion that we became polytheists um, so you, but, but the question Andrew's kind of raising is is there such so why does the Bible speak about he's God is first amongst the gods as though they're real are they real or are they not and I find there was a couple of passages in the rest of the Bible that make it really clear one is uh, 1 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 8 um, they're talking about the issue is can we eat food that was sacrificed to idols at the pagan butcher and Paul basically says it depends because there's nothing that you need to fear about the food but you don't want to be involved in idolatry because it's demonic so I'll just share both passages 1 Corinthians 8 verse um, 4 as for the eating of food offered to idols we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So, you know, that's monotheism. There's only one real God. Um, and he goes, he goes on, although there are many so-called gods in heaven or earth, indeed there are many gods, and the ESV puts it in inverted commas, I think correctly, and many lords, in inverted commas, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Which, by the way, is a fantastic verse about the Trinity because it takes the 
the Shema, the, the Hebrew confession that there's only one God and then applies it to the Father and to the Son. So anyway, that's, that's by the way for now. But, um, so there's these fake so-called not real gods. You know, an idol is just something that humans make and out of clay or out of wood and doesn't really live. But then he bits the counterpoint of it in chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 29. Sorry, verse 19, I mean. What do we imply? That food offers to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, an idol isn't anything. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. And I think that really helps. So there's only one God and there's little statues that you can make that are just statues. But there are evil powers and demons behind the worship of those statues. So on the one hand, you don't have to worry because they're, they're fake. On the other hand, don't get involved because there's something sinister here. And I, yeah, I, it's just a perspective on this question. You are first among the gods. Yes, they're fakes, but the devil is a real enemy behind Pharaoh's regime. Yeah, and this fits with the theme we picked up in the last podcast, which is that um, why is God rescuing his people? Well, yes, he's relocating them from an unpleasant condition to a better one, but it's so that he might know they might know him and he might dwell with them and he might reveal himself and what these israelites need to discover and we we discover at the end of chapter two they cry out but they don't cry out to the lord they don't know the lord that over 400 years they've i guess become polytheists they've started to be influenced by the egyptian culture around them i don't think moses knows the lord very well and and part of what's going on in these plague sections is that god is saying oh let me just introduce myself and show you you know you've been worshipping all the wrong gods and it's a really stupid thing to do because I who is like you know um they're they're nothing compared to me and it's it's part of helping the Israelites themselves get converted um Mm -hmm. and to for God to show himself as well to the Egyptians and to the whole world um why don't we think about how God shows himself so one of the ways is in smashing his enemies and the plagues are you know they're horrific things water to blood hailstones the size of rocks that instantly demolish tre- i mean even it says they strip the hailstones strip the trees and if you're a, a living creature like the cows and the people under them they're instantly going to die and these are horrific plagues but god shows who he is not only in the judgments but in the patience leading up to the judgments and in the withdrawal of the judgments. So I think I said earlier that the film Exodus, Gods and Kings is a terrible film. The thing it gets wrong about the plagues is that it, I guess they'd they'd argue it's just for the sake of time in the film, but they eliminate all of the warnings. And it it views like a very different kind of story. It's just a God who throws 10 punches against Pharaoh. But you read Exodus and the whole thing is, um, is permeated by actually this, very sort of well-ordered pattern of warning so plague one there's a warning in the morning plague two there's a warning and then plague three having been warned twice it just comes without a warning and then plague four a warning in the morning plague five a warning plague six again no warning because you've had a couple to 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 pay attention to and then again it comes warning in the morning then a warning then no warning so it's really central and by you know by repetition and by this pattern that the author is really showing us God gives Pharaoh a chance and gives Egyptians a chance. Um, so it's not only his judgment that shows who he is, but his patience and his forewarning that shows who he is. And there's a, there's a lovely example of it. I think the seventh plague, which is the hail, 
This is in chapter 9, 17. And Moses is saying to Pharaoh, um, look, you're still exalting yourself against my people. And then he says, I'm going to send the hail. Verse 19. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. So he, he gives him a chance to respond in faith. And actually, it says in verse 20, then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. So we're seeing that the Lord is is giving a chance over these succession of plagues, not just to reveal himself to, to Israel, but some of these uh, Egyptians, uh, bit by bit, it's dawning on them, oh, maybe we should listen to what the Lord says. And they, they try it out. Okay, let's move our livestock. Oh, wow. It really worked, and you know my livestock are fine. My neighbour ignored it, and they're not. And then by the end, as we're going to go on, we're going to discover. I think it's chapter twelve, thirty-eight. That by the time the Israelites leave um, the country, it's a, a mixed multitude leave with them. There's there's a revival amongst the Egyptians because because of God's patience during and His warnings, um, lots of the Egyptians have decided to to join the people of God. So, and we saw this in Ephesians in our last grace book, didn't we? That God's distinctions are never purely ethnic. And it's just, you know, it's horrific to see the way that racism has been justified sometimes in the name of the church. But you look at the Bible clearly, um, you look at the Bible closely, and you find that God never makes ethnic distinctions. It's always, do you trust him or not? Yeah. And, and even, and we, we were thinking about this in a preaching series recently when. God introduces circumcision and, and Abraham, he has 318 fighting men who are not from his household. He's only got one biological child at that stage. So right from the beginning, um, it's most people in the people of God have not been um, DNA uh, connected to, to Abraham. And here we see, you know, it's the same again. It's just a mixed multitude. So God's mercy is shown in his warnings. God's mercy is also shown in the ending of plagues. So we said that Egyptian magicians can produce extra frogs, but only God takes away frogs when Pharaoh cries out for mercy. And um, one of the guys in our in our Bible study group was pointing out this theme in chapter eight, verse thirty-one, um, when Pharaoh asked for the flies to go away, and ma- and the Lord removed the flies, and it says not one remains. So there's not a single fly that's left. Um, after they cry for mercy and then same in chapter 10 verse 18 not a single locust was left so god he judges and he's terrifying but he really is willing to withhold judgment or to to remove judgment to end judgment for those who call out to him and pharaoh cries out to him and he's okay so this emphasizes the fact that pharaoh is still in trouble must be because a refusal of pharaoh to ask for mercy god's ready to show mercy and we get the, the language for Pharaoh, well, we get various language. Sometimes we discover um, that he, Pharaoh, he hardens his own heart. Um, sometimes it's just passive. His heart was hardened and it's ambiguous. And sometimes uh, we're told explicitly that God does it. Um, can you, is, how are we meant to read these? Is there a pattern or yeah, what are we meant to do with the, this sort of language? So I think, like many places in the Bible, we've got to hold two principles in tension, and we see two principles in the text, that God is sovereign over what's going to happen. In fact, he even announces before the first plague that I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will not let you go, and he will not listen. So it's not like it's a surprise to God that Pharaoh is so stubborn. God kind of 
predicts it and purposes it. Um, and yet at the same time, Pharaoh is responsible. And we find it hard to combine this because we either say this was God's plan and so Pharaoh is a, a puppet and it's not his fault and God is sort of being um, unjustly cruel to him. Or we say um, it's um, entirely Pharaoh's doing and God isn't really in control of the outcome. And the Bible insists on a third way, which is God is absolutely in control of the, of the outcome. And he even says um, in chapter nine, I have raised you up for this very purpose. So God intends this. And that's um, a, a verse that Paul, the Apostle Paul, quotes in Romans chapter nine to make the same point. God is in charge of this, but it's not God being in charge of it in the way that God somehow does the evil or somehow warps Pharaoh's heart. So you had an interesting thought on, I mean, it's actually three different verbs, aren't there, for hardening, but one of them is a kind of strengthening verb. And you had some thoughts on that. Well, I like I like the um, the glossing of he strengthened his heart because sometimes if we hear the word harden, we wrongly cause it to mean, well, he was neutral Pharaoh, doesn't know which way to turn. And then God puts a terrible hardening so it, you know, pushes him down the bad route, um, which it never means that. And strengthen kind of makes it clear that that's that's the, the sense of it. So it w- we start with a pharaoh who hates God. He's he's born in Adam. Um, he's got a heart that's resistant to God. And then what God does is he he lets off the handbrake, um, and he enables Pharaoh to be strengthened in his pre- existing condition. Um, and that's God, God's in control of that. And um, but it's not in he's not inserting a new idea uh, where Pharaoh up till then had been a good up you know God fearing guy. I guess it's the same with Judas Iscariot and you know, Judas for for his own greed wants to betray Jesus and Satan entices him and he wants to betray Jesus and yet at the same time God's sovereign over it but God is not the author of that evil impulse but he harnesses it for his ends. Yeah. So we've got a stubborn Pharaoh who and he kind of wavers doesn't he because there's after some of the places, he says, okay, you can go, but with conditions attached, like you can go, but you have to come back tomorrow and leave your children on deposit. And, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not a sort of full, or you can go. In, interestingly, Moses turns down an offer of you can go, but you can't take any animals with you. I think I would take that if I was in, but Moses says, no, no, that's no good because we have to be able to honor the Lord with worship and sacrifice. So we, we can't accept freedom if it doesn't come with the with the opportunity to worship, which is really striking. But anyway, Pharaoh kind of he softens and he there's moments where he's ready to give up, but God strengthens him to be stubborn. So God obviously wants it to last the whole course. Yeah. What? Why is that? Well, we get Pharaoh's clues. Um, it's it's basically because God really wants His name to be known, and by doing it in this gradual. Um, fashion and and pharaoh being hardened it becomes a much bigger fight and everyone gets to hear of it and there's various people hear of it one is that um uh, we discover that god is hardening pharaoh so that his name might might be known in all the world and even actually um in the book of exodus we see little glimpses of this so when we get to chapter 18 um moses comes out and he tells his father-in-law jethro who's a midianite this is what happened and Jethro does what we're going to see again and again. Um, he's, he says, wow, your God is the great God. Let's worship him. And then we see but wonderfully with the story of um, 
Rahab in Joshua 2 that I mean she's hundreds of miles away this is you know decades later and she says oh I've heard about your God because of what he did to Pharaoh and therefore I'm converting I'm going to you know and she gives a confession and turns to the Lord so wonderfully all of this horrible stuff that's happening God is doing it for the sake of the Rahabs of the world so that they will hear and see that he's the true God and turn to him and we are part of if if um if you're hearing this now uh you know about the Lord because of this um so he God has got us in his heart he wants to reveal himself so that we can trust in him sorry, sorry. um my mind's gone blank um so you just have you said what children grandchildren no let's go then oh, yeah should we go back a bit and that's why i could just keep going we just put a pause it's easy to cut let's okay. just be silent so so god wants to his name to be known to gentiles far away who else does god want his name to be known by <laughs> I love the absolutely explicit direction that God gives to authors of children's Bibles. Because obviously, you know, children's Bible is not going to be as long as a, the full Bible. It can't have everything in it. But God actually tells you, make sure you include this. And I think most children's Bibles do, don't they? The plagues of Egypt. But chapter 10, verse 1. Um, Go into Pharaoh. I've hardened his heart, the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them that you may know that I'm the Lord. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that we sometimes sort of censor stuff for children and we say we can't tell them the, the brutal bits of the Bible. I rather like the action Bible, though, which I think is a, a Bible designed for teenage boys that does have all of the big battles in because God knows it'll be very comforting for children to know that their God is more powerful than their enemies. Yeah, and if, you know your little child is, is going to bed at night, you tuck them in. Um, yes, it's nice to tell them that God loves them, but they already know that there are scary things in the world. They know there's nightmares. What they need to know is that their God can beat up bullies. And, and that's actually, I think, you know, why why for generations people have told their children um, fairy tales. Bec- I mean, because they already know there's darkness in the world. What they need to know is that there is some there's a hero who's stronger than the darkness who can drive it out and the bible declares god not not as a weak soppy god but as a you know a defeater of bullies thank you for listening to grace pod for more information about grace church greenwich visit www.greenwich.church